Welcome to Language on Purpose with linguist, teacher, consultant, and veteran language learner, Mary Lynn Kinberg. Here's your host for today's show. Hey, everyone. Today, we focus on some fascinating facts about the brain and language learning. We'll ask our guest, Pam Eckerd, about those facts and how you can apply them. A friend and a colleague, Pam is a linguist, language learning coach, teacher, and senior consultant with SIL International. Welcome, my friend. Where are you joining us from? From Dallas, Texas. And in a few words, how are your chickens? They're doing fine. (laughs) Sounds like your grandchildren were a bit rough on them this week. No. (laughs) Well, work-wise, Pam, besides your chickens, what are you currently up to? I'm consulting with a couple of uh, Native American groups. They have a desire to revitalize their languages before they totally disappear. And um, I'm working with them on thinking through the cost to themselves, to the community, to how how they would have to incorporate, how they could possibly incorporate the language back into their lives after they haven't been using it as part of their lives. And it's, it's quite challenging, but you have to feel for them and, and for their losses and you know, try to support them as they consider what is possible. And I'm also coaching some learners who are language learners who are in Romania and they are learning both the Romanian language and Romanian sign at the same time. They both already speak others, I mean, sign, other signed languages. And they assure me that their Romanian sign is coming along ever so much faster than their Romanian. Um, But working on learning two languages and two different modalities at the same time and having the chance to coach them is really quite enjoyable. That's really fascinating, Pam. And hmm, giving me some more ideas here for more podcasts. Uh, Pam, when we taught second language acquisition, Your presentation on the brain and language processing was a big and forgettable wow. Um, Can you tell us what motivated that research and why you personally delved into the mysteries of brain activity? Well, I was forced to delve into the mysteries of brain activity in 1990, a time when I was working as a respected member of a team of creative educators. We were working on projects to support children of cross-cultural workers. And all of a sudden, I was um, rejected from a team of professionals assigned to a 17-year-old medical curiosity who'd gone from being a high school athlete and my son to someone with a wildly fluctuating temperature and limited mental function, fighting his restraints around the clock. No, he never slept around the clock. 
that was the most disorienting cross-cultural experience of my life. And I was determined to use everything I knew about entering a new world where nothing made sense in order to give my son a better life than the one that the medical professionals were content to accept as his fate. And learning how the brain functions was part of that process. About a year into this time period that we call the hell years, I met a young psychiatrist who'd been assigned to my son as one of his patients, who became my private teacher for the next year while Daniel was there as an inmate in his total institution. Under Tom's tutelage, I learned enough that I even attended a psychiatric convention and was entitled to quite a few continuing education credits. Of course, I would have needed medical board certification in order to have anything to apply them to. But how the brain learns language at that time was not high on my priority list, as you can imagine. But I did have one experience about month five of the ordeal. His neurologist at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, which was hospital number four, informed me that when our son Daniel started to speak again, he would speak first in Spanish, since that was his first language. We had adopted him in Guatemala when he was six. I informed the neurologist that our son already did speak to us and that he spoke in English, which was our family language. But the neurologist didn't let that shake him at all from his knowledge about how the brain handles language. Tom actually taught me as much about how male physicians think and how total institutions work as about the nitty gritty of the functions of the different lobes of the brain and the neurotransmitters and the synapses and the malfunctions of the brain. And all of what I learned from him is relevant to entering a new world and trying to be understood in that world. Well, thank you for sharing such a personal story uh, with us, Pam. How has your knowledge of how the brain works, how has that influenced what you advocate for in language learning? It has made me kinder. It's made me more um, willing to work with people to understand their own resistances and to get past just holding on to shame and wanting to beat up on themselves and to, to help them. Um, when, when you talk objectively about neural connections and how they get changed and how they get formed and all that. It's scientific and objective enough that people are more able to uh, stop beating up on themselves and to, to start, um, yeah, recognizing, oh, it's, it's, there's a reason and there's something I can do. Well, what would you say specifically about learning vocabulary? Could you explain what a strong encounter is uh, with learning vocabulary and why that's optimum in terms of the brain? Well, strong encounter implies something more than 
seeing a word on a flashcard, for example, or having a vocabulary list that your teacher gives you. Um, it's interacting with the word as, as a real concept as, um, and connecting it to other things in your brain so that, yeah, it's not, a, it's not an isolate, but it's, it's connected to experience and connected to, to the real world. And so how does that tie in with using um, manipulatives? Well, manipulatives, of course, tie you to the real world. They're here and now, and they're, they're objects. Um, so if you're um, playing games where you have to find the boy from a number of objects or whatever, it, that your, the neural connections are actually strengthened because you're making a lot more of them because it's not just word and word in another language, but it's, it's a, it's an entire interaction. So um, anything that you do that um, broadens its entrance into the real world is making a stronger encounter, but your first time around, you know, a strong encounter leads to the possibility of moving from short-term to long-term storage, but you still want a lot more encounters in other contexts to make other links to continue strengthening so that your brain doesn't decide to pair that, pair away those neural connections that it's made. Well, um, can you talk to us about spaced repetition in learning vocabulary? Okay. Um, spaced repetition tends to be used more by people trying to convince you to use a certain flashcard program or a, a program, a language learning program that's, you know, already established or that you're putting new information into this data bank so that you will, um, the program will keep bringing that flashcard back on a regular basis, depending on the particular algorithms of that, that particular program. But actually, spaced repetition in the real world, which is the one I prefer to live in, is um, coming back to your old vocabulary items. So it's not a chapter in a book that you memorize and then go on to other vocab. It's anything that you've already had a strong encounter with. You keep including it in your new activities that you use on a, on a regular basis of over time. So there are intervals that you, you bring back vocabulary and, and reincorporate it. You obviously can't, as you learn a lot of vocabulary, you can't use every single one in every single language sessions, but you don't leave them behind. You keep reintroducing them. And so that, you know, that's a spaced repetition that's much more real and has much stronger encounters. Because I, I know you've used um, Anki or some people say Anki um, as a flashcard system can, that does say that, that does incorporate spaced repetition. Correct. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Well, I recommend Anki because it doesn't automatically think it knows 
what spaces you should have. You get to determine your spaces and you can always override. And for me, when you've had a, a strong encounter with new vocab and you put it in your Anki deck, you wanna, your goal is to keep it fresh enough that every day when you're going back for your next learning session, you have, it's already there and you're not gonna bore the person you're working with by them having to do the repetition. So to me, the flashcards are a courtesy function where you're continuing the refreshing on your own so that they're having a good time because they're always getting to introduce new material, but, but continue to include spaced repetition, the old material you already have. So it's, it's, it's a courtesy. It's not your way of learning. It's just to have you ready to have another, to have a good session the next time. And, and like I say, Anki doesn't control it for you. You get to make the choices about when you want to see the card again. And uh, we were talking about polyglot Gabriel Weiner and how he talks about spaced repetition in his book, Fluent Forever. And he says, quote, in a four-month period, practicing for 30 minutes a day, you can expect to learn and retain 3,600 flashcards with a 90 to 95% accuracy. Could you comment on his statement? Well, I didn't know the guy, so I listened to a podcast where he was was talking about flashcards, and and he said that he's the time's not going into the actual flashcard time. This thirty minutes a day isn't where the learning takes place. His learning takes place beforehand in the construction of his cards, and it takes a whole lot longer than the review that he does each day. So this statement is, you know, taken out of context, is misleading in terms of what he says much more broadly. Um, and for him, he's doing language acquisition, which is not my thing. My thing is building relationships in a new language cultural world, and like I was trying to build relationships in the hospital to find advocates, to find people who would listen to my suggestions and all that sort of thing, to, to earn a voice, to enter a community, which I'd been clearly closed out of as an outsider who, who had no value because I was only a mother. I couldn't even know that my son was speaking English to me for goodness sakes, you know, because I, what, what did I know? I wasn't, I wasn't a medical professional, you know? So, <laughs> so my, my view of language is, is, is totally different than this, okay, I am a professional polyglot. I can talk to you about the joys of language learning and what you do and all that. Um, you know, that's, that's not my thing. Um, but for him, that's the, high, that's the high motivation, you know, kick in another acquired language. And so, of course, it's feeding into that whole well, stuff we'll get into about the brain and, and how, you know, that, that reinforcement moves you forward. But th this statement by itself doesn't represent what he's doing at all. Okay. Yeah. Well, still talking about vocabulary, I was reading 
that learning vocabulary in a long list is much more difficult than when you use that vocabulary to tell a story. So can you tell us some more about the brain and storytelling in language learning? Well, I think it's a wonderful technique to use, to start with a story in mind and build vocabulary to get to that, to where the story can be understood and then later told. Um, and Greg Thompson uses in, in his approach, he, by phase two, first you're building stories and then after you continue to increase your vocabulary and all um, in the stories you build, then you just start listening to stories and then going back and re-listening and learning the new vocabulary because your brain is constantly working to seek meaning. It's trying to organize, it's looking for patterns and lists of words don't have patterns. There's no patterns there. But stories have beginnings, middles, and ends. They, in themselves, they have structure and pattern. And within that, sentences have structure and pattern. And your brain is having a chance to, to create the bigger blocks that it was made to do. And stories in themselves add help your, your brain to um, release certain neurotransmitters and um, that are helping form those neural connections, increasing your ability to concentrate, increasing your memory, increasing your creativity and your motivation, your attention, just and your joy. So stories are releasing all sorts of useful neurotransmitters that are um, letting, letting you learn in a way that brings joy. Whereas wordless, they're not happening in your brain at all. There's no pattern, there's no connectivity, isolation. You know, isolation is not good for anybody or any brain cell. Brain cells like to be connected. Well, you're talking about, um, you're talking about hormones that are being released that aid in language learning. So talk to us about activating dopamine in language learning. Okay. Well, I can talk to you about how it doesn't get activated and how it'll just kill your motivation. <laughs> I, um, it doesn't get activated if you're not together having fun. And I was doing these language learning sessions um, for one of these um, American Indian languages. And um, the other person stopped doing her anki. She stopped practicing. She stopped being ready for the next session. And so I didn't get to go on and it was boring. And that I just totally dried up my dopamine. And I stopped practicing this week and motivation just went out the window. But if you instead are, are looking to how can I make this fun and funny, laughter is going to generate dopamine. Um, and that's, there's other things, listening to stories, um, 
moving, which of course, if you've got dolls and stuff and you're using them, interacting with people you really like, I really like these people. Having the ability to choose is generates dopamine. So when you're not confined, this is the right answer, but you've, you've got to figure it out and you get to choose the right answer. Um, these things are all, are all generating your dopamine. But if you've got the other person who's learning with you and they haven't done their homework, <laughs> all that just gets sucked away and that motivation goes away. So yeah, you want to do activities where you're making sure that, that the person who's helping you learn the language is having fun. That the group that is learning together, each person is having fun. And that you're doing something, you're moving, you, because both of those are really, the humor and movement are just crucial to dopamine production, which you need to keep focused, to keep motivated, all that good stuff. So, yeah, so focus on making it fun for everybody in your group all the time by doing your homework. And then you will keep having dopamine, it will keep being rewarding, you will want to keep going. And yeah, it's, it's a, what's the opposite of a vicious cycle? A beautiful cycle, I don't know, a reinforcing growth cycle. Well, you know that I've balked at using ridiculous combinations in your language learning when you're working with manipulatives, like, um, you know, saying the dog is standing on the donkey or using wordless books with sort of stupid stories and characters that don't fit the culture. Uh, so in light of what you've just said, what would your response be to that? The reason for the, um, the stories that aren't in either person's culture is because it makes the description ever so much more a joint progress because process because neither of you live in that world. And so you're both looking at these pictures and trying to figure out how to describe them and, and what to say about them. Um, whereas if it's in one or the other of your cultures, well, there's nothing to say. You are, you know, let's look at it. It's right there. So it, it, the silliness gives you something to talk about, uh, but it also gives you something to laugh about. It is possible that you will discover that the person you're working with balks and says, this is stupid. Um, but I personally, I've found that working with the dolls, you know, you can do all sorts of crazy things with them. And it is fun and funny. And you're both laughing, which is releasing dopamine, which is helping you focus, which is helping you learn. So it's, um, but if it doesn't work, if, you know, if they're too threatened, people can be too threatened. And if they're too threatened by having fun, um, you try to find ways that can be fun for them. No, I don't insist. Well, Pam, is there any other advice that you would give or point you'd like to reiterate? Anything else you would like to add in relationship to our brains and learning language? Yeah, I... The, this whole area of resistance is just is so important to me because 
you know, in my years of fighting to give my son a life again, um, seeing where resistance comes from, because resistance is tied to all these neurotoxins, neurotransmitters that are, you know, saying, flee, flee. You know, your brain's main job is to keep you alive. And after that, you know, it's to have fun and those other things. But, you know, number one is, is your brain has to keep everything functioning to, to keep you alive. And so a fear reaction will just burn through the transmission, the neurotransmitters in your brain and these connections and send you straight to get out of this situation or beat up, beat up the people who are here or whatever. You know, you can have a fight or flight response, but either way, um, situations that, that cause strong negative emotions, your brain is really quick to just burn paths out of your brain. And, um, and then you have to work at, at working around what's been destroyed to recreate safe paths. And so, you know, so many language learning failures, and like now I'm dealing with whole cultures that because of trauma in Indian boarding schools, for the most part, caused people to, to shut down and to, um, you know, have a very negative reaction to hearing or speaking their own language because they experience such trauma related to it um you have you have to know your brain and you have to understand about sleep you're moving stuff from short-term memory to long-term memory that happens while you're sleeping and so you want to have these um have your session, have you have your time and then give your brain time to sleep and to process. It's deciding what moves from short-term to long-term memory. It's figuring out how it's making its connections. And you don't have, we don't have much control over what happens at night, but one thing they've learned, um, you know, if you're, if you're having a stressful language session or something and you know, you've, you're shamed or whatever. Um, you really need to process that before you go to bed because otherwise your brain's going to be processing that shame. But what you want to do is think it through and figure out what happened, figure out a strategy, reassure your brain that you have a strategy for the next day that, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to handle it in a different way or like the Israelis army if somebody's been had a trauma or something, they don't let that person go to sleep until they're la after they've been laughing. You know, no matter how awful the trauma was, they keep them awake until they can um, replace that that terror with with some positives. You know, get some dopamine flowing and all that. Get some get some positives in there before you sleep, and the brain then doesn't process it the same way at night it's not it wasn't left with the negative destructive let's you know let's charge a path through the brain that'll not let this happen to me again sort of thing 
but a strategy for how to, you know, how to handle it differently next time or whatever. So yeah, there's just a whole lot about the brain and about, about working um, with your brain to help your language and culture learning be a positive experience and continue to, to motivate you to want to keep going on all of that. Thank you, Pam. That's, that's a really good word for a lot of us learners who are overachievers and want to just keep our nose to the grindstone and, and, and not rest and, and not sleep. So um, be, before we wrap up, Pam, I, I know you shared on another show about a cultural faux pas that you committed in Bangladesh, but that was a real, it turned out to be a real turning point. Um, can you share another incident that I know that you were, that you talked to, to me about another incident that was a real moment of revelation? Pam, before we wrap up, I know you shared on another show a cultural faux pas that you committed when you were in, in Bangladesh. But I think you have another story that you wanted to tell. Okay. Um, this one happened in, in Guatemala um, when I was young. And uh, my Spanish was good, and I knew linguistics and all that. And I got there to Guatemala and newly arrived and had this opportunity to teach in this little mini intro to the different facets of linguistics kind of course, phonetics, phonology, grammar stuff. And um, one of my students came up to me on the first break and said, was introducing herself. And she said, and, and I translated the Popol Vuh. And I you just had this total panic moment. I had no idea what she was talking about. None, none. But I knew this was important and I should probably be impressed or something. Um, and, you know, gave the appro appropriate O's and ah's. And I must have processed it before I went to bed that night because I don't have any shame memories. Uh, but it was so strong that, you idiot, how could you come to another country and pretend to be a teacher and know nothing about cultural norms. And so I, you know, asked somebody and found out that the Popovu was the Kiche sort of equivalent of the Bible, you know, it was the, the history, the mythology, the creation stories, and all this sort of stuff for one of the major cultures of, of Guatemala. And here's, a, here's this lady taking this interlinguistics course, and she's already translated from, you know, two different languages and everything. But even though I don't, re don't remember any other details of the story, and I, I'm sure I passed, I passed her test of acting impressed enough that it was fine for her, it caused me to always want to do my homework before I ever went to another country again to learn enough about the history and culture of that country that I wouldn't be caught out like that again with no idea of what I had just been told. 
And I became a big advocate of reading kids' textbooks. What does everybody know in a culture? And read it, you know, in the language of the culture as soon as you can. Um, as part of, of your just basic getting a clue as to what it means to be a person of this country. What is the knowledge that is shared among everybody in this culture? So it was a little thing that didn't have any terrible consequences, but it just totally focused me on don't go unprepared again. Don't ever do that again. Pam, what was the quiche word again? Oh, the, the book, it was the Popol Vuh was the name of the book. Yeah. Okay. And it was originally a codex that was in, in Mayan hieroglyphics and all that. And then, um, then it had been translated by a priest in the 1700s or something. But she had done a modern translation of it. And it's a really big deal really important part of their history yeah a huge thing well pam thank you so much for being on the show today and uh, sharing your knowledge and and part of your personal story and i hope that we can have you back soon me too <laughs> thanks for listening to language on purpose hope you won't miss an episode we'll talk to you next time